welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And I'm Brad. In our last episode, we discussed the life of General Patrick Claiborne, an Irish immigrant who became a well-respected division commander in the Confederate Army. This week, we are going to discuss Claiborne's controversial proposal to arm slaves and conclude with the tragedy of the Battle of Franklin. In our previous episode, we left off with Patrick Claiborne issuing a proposal to his commanding officers, detailing his belief that enslaved individuals should be enlisted and trained as soldiers in exchange for their freedom. Claiborne put a lot of thought into this proposal. For one thing, he waited until his prestige as a division commander was undeniable. Remember, his division just made a valiant stand at Ringgold Gap in Georgia. So the Confederate leadership had to at least listen to him, had to take him seriously. He spent several days drafting this proposal, and he asked for input from some of his subordinates, many of whom were willing to provide their signature endorsing the document. And on January 2, 1864, Claiborne requested a meeting with the leadership of the Army of Tennessee which included the division and corps commanders, as well as the Army commander, General Joseph E. Johnston. After being introduced by the group, by General William Hardy, Claiborne stood and read his proposal. We're going to read a few, not the, obviously not the whole proposal, but we are going to read a few lengthy quotes from it because I think his own words should stand mm-hmm. for themselves. And bear with us because we'll be explaining some of them afterwards too. So if you don't get it while we're talking about it, don't worry. Claiborne began by detailing the plight that the Confederacy was in. He said, Our soldiers can see no end to this state of affairs except in our own exhaustion. Hence, instead of rising to the occasion, they are sinking into a fatal apathy, growing weary of hardships and slaughters which promise no results. In this state of things, it is easy to understand why there is a growing belief that some black catastrophe is not far ahead of us, and that unless some extraordinary change is soon made in our condition, we must overtake it. He mentions a list of reasons why this was happening, concluding with, the fact that slavery, from being one of our chief sources of strength at the commencement of the war, has now become, in a military point of view, one of our chief sources of weakness. One thing to keep in mind is that Claiborne's proposal comes almost exactly one year after the Emancipation Proclamation which acted as an invitation for African-Americans to enlist in the U.S. Army. Claiborne actually mentions this in his proposal when he said, The President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, announces that he has already in training an army of 100,000 Negroes as good as any troops, and every fresh raid he makes and new slice of territory he wrests from us will add to this force. Claiborne notes that while the South can only draw soldiers from their own population of white men, the North can draw from their white population, the South's slave population, and those individuals who immigrate to the United States specifically to fight against the South. In order to deal with this discrepancy, Claiborne suggested that the Confederacy, quote, immediately commence training a large reserve of the most courageous of our slaves, and further that we guarantee freedom within a reasonable time to every slave in the South who shall remain true to the Confederacy in this war. As between the loss of independence and the loss of slavery, we assume that every patriot will freely give up the latter, give up the Negro slave rather than be a slave himself. 
Pause for That's pretty powerful right there. It It is, and it, it what does he say? Um, we assume every patriot, every patriot will freely give up the latter, give up the Negro slave rather than be a slave himself. That's what he assumed. Yes, going back again to his probably connection with his Irish view of independence. Right. Claiborne assumes that independence is the most important mm-hmm. thing. Again, that's going to come back and maybe come back to haunt him in just a little bit. He said, the immediate effect of the emancipation and enrollment of Negroes on the military strength of the South would be to enable us to have armies numerically superior to those of the North and a reserve of any size we might think necessary. To enable us to take the offensive, move forward, and forage on the enemy, it would open to us in prospective another and almost untouched source of supply and furnish us with the means of preventing temporary disaster and carrying on a protracted struggle. It would instantly remove all the vulnerability, embarrassment, and inherent weakness which result from slavery. The approach of the enemy would no longer find every household surrounded by spies. The fear that sealed the master's lips and the avarice that has, in so many cases, tempted him practically to desert us would alike be removed. There would be no recruits awaiting the enemy with open arms, no complete history of every neighborhood with ready guides, no fear of insurrection in the rear, or anxieties for the fate of loved ones when our armies moved forward. The chronic irritation of hope deferred would be joyfully ended with the Negro, and the sympathies of his whole race would be due to his native South. It seems that Patrick Claiborne truly did view this war as a David versus Goliath struggle, where a small group was trying to defend itself against a tyrannical overlord. To him, the war was not simply about defending the institution of slavery. Towards the end of his proposal, he said this, It is said slavery is all we are fighting for, and if we give it up, we give up all. Even if this were true, which we deny, slavery is not all our enemies are fighting for. It is merely the pretense to establish sectional superiority and a more centralized form of government, and to deprive us of our rights and liberties. Now, some members of this meeting seem to support Claiborne's proposal, but others were very much against it. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, received word of this proposal, and he said, that, quote, deeming it to be injurious to the public service that such subject should be mooted or even known to be entertained by persons possessed of confidence and respect to the people, I have concluded that the best policy will be to avoid all publicity. If it be kept out of the public journals, its ill effect will be much lessened. Confederate Secretary of War James A. Seddon further detailed Jefferson Davis's opinion, saying that Davis directs the suppression not only of the proposal itself, but likewise of all discussion and controversy respecting or growing out of it. So essentially, President Jefferson Davis is saying, don't even talk about it anymore. The public can't know that you even brought this up because if they find out that people that we trust are even talking about arming the slaves, that could be terrible for our war effort. And what's interesting to note is that about a month prior to this, so December of 1863, Davis had already recognized that having an army with dwindling numbers was a strong concern, but he didn't come up with the same solution that Patrick Claiborne did. He said in his, one of his orders that in the ranks of such of the able-bodied men now employed as wagoners, nurses, cooks, and others employees as are doing service for in which the Negroes may be found competent. So essentially he says, let's get 
more African Americans to come in and do the menial job so that our white men can then fight in the army. Another interesting thing is that Jefferson Davis ordered that everybody stop talking about this. So for a long time, like all of Claiborne's proposals, all the copies of it were destroyed. We only know about this at all. Like we only have the actual text of it because one person decided to actually keep the proposal. And years later, it was found in a trunk in his house. So it, this proposal itself was almost entirely lost because Jefferson Davis was so adamant mm-hmm. that they stopped talking about it altogether. And here are just a few more responses to Claiborne's proposal. General James Patton Anderson referred to the proposal as revolting to the Southern sentiment, Southern pride, and Southern honor. General Joseph Wheeler said that if Claiborne would have brought this up back in Helena, Arkansas, he would have likely been hanged. General States Rights Guess, another man to die at the Battle of Franklin, referred to the proposal as monstrous. And then later in the war, others weighed in just on this idea of arming slaves. Confederate Warren Aiken responded to the public sentiment against arming slaves by saying, if they give up their sons, husbands, brothers, and friends to the army, but let one of their Negroes be taken, and what a howl you will hear. Oh man, I... That's a really, really interesting point. Right. You'll let your you'll let your loved ones die for this cause. But when one of your slaves has the potential of becoming free, that's when you decide to protest? And another response, and this kind of sums up, I think, the view of many in the Confederate leadership, came from General Hal Cobb, who said, I think that the proposition to make soldiers of our slaves is the most pernicious idea that has been suggested since the war began. And one of the ironies of his proposal is that while he was trying to prove that the Confederacy was not primarily trying to protect slavery, the response he received from his proposal in some ways proved the exact opposite to be true. I, I was thinking a lot I was thinking a lot about this as we were mm-hmm. researching this. I think Claiborne issued this proposal in earnest. Like he really believed that he was doing the right thing in that there were enough people out there mm. to go along with it. And but, it was probably one of the only solutions to the Confederacy's lack of numbers. But what he inadvertently did was that he kind of called out the Confederate leadership and said, if this is really about our independence and not about some other side issue, then why would we not do this? And their response to him basically said, well, it's not really only about our independence. It's about this other thing. Yeah, he's proving the point because I like what you wrote here that he told the Confederate leadership to put their money where their mouth was. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And another another kind of interesting point is that before the proposal, Claiborne's view of the Confederacy was the same that many modern Confederate apologists have today. They, so, some people would argue that the war wasn't really about slavery. It was truly about the states wanting independence from the federal government. But what this fails to accept is the response that Claiborne received, in which he unwittingly called their bluff. And ironically, on March 13, 1865, so about a month before the Civil War ends, the Confederacy did pass a law that would allow black men to serve in combat roles, with the provision, quote, that nothing in this act shall be construed to authorize a change in the relationship which the said slave shall bear toward their owners, unquote. So... Essentially, we will arm the slaves, but they'll still be slaves. Don't worry, their owners still own them. 
all of that came nothing. Because, yeah, again, <laughs> uh, active fighting ended about three weeks later. Right. That, that took place on March 13th. The war is over, pretty much entirely over in April. Claiborne himself, though, would not live to see the dying Confederacy half-heartedly embrace his proposal. Because what happened to Claiborne after January of 1864? Well, and I think it's important we talk some about the supposed consequences that Claiborne received. One commonly held belief is that he was prevented from being promoted because he issued this proposal. Now, there is no direct evidence to support this, but it is true that others advanced in the chain of command and he did not. But if that was a punishment to him, it was indirect. It wasn't it at least wasn't stated that he was being punished because of this proposal. And coincidentally, just a few weeks after Claiborne submitted the proposal, one of the biggest points in his, you know, career, on January 13th, 1864, he met a young woman named Susan Tarleton while serving as the best man at another officer's wedding. I, I kind of like this moment because it's like he just suffered this, like, major... Career setback? Yes, career setback in which he was kind of reprimanded by the president of the Confederacy. And then just a couple of weeks later, he meets this girl at a wedding and falls in love with her. And in the week that followed, while Claiborne was on po- on furlough, the two fell in love with one another. And he even asked her to marry him, but Wait, she hesitated. You mean they didn't fall in love with other people? <laughs> no. <laughs> they fell in love with each other. And within about a week, he asked her to marry him. But she said, she said no. She said not yet. Yeah. A brief hesitation there, probably for the best, but she does agree six weeks later, and the two are engaged. And they corresponded regularly after that, and there is this just kind of moment of kind of sweet happiness. Claiborne's close friend, Leonard Mangum, described Claiborne's feelings for his fiancée by saying, Letters which he, Claiborne, wrote to his betrothed were sometimes read amid some quiet camp scenes, and were often revelations, even to one who knew him well, as to the depth of his feelings. Devoid of all approach to sentimentality, they were full of a most sweet and tender passion. They detailed the author's thoughts and fancies in a style that was both elevated and beautiful, and in every line they were glowing with an affection that was exquisite in its pathos and tenderness. So I just love that they're sitting around campfires and he's reading love letters that he's writing to his girlfriend, his fiance, out loud to his staff. It's just not something and, you expect soldiers and, to do. And they're appreciating it. Yeah, and they for, like it. For what it is. I mean, he's their general, so they can't really be like, oh, this no, is weird, you should stop. Weird. stop. Stop reading your love letters to me. But during the Atlantic campaign, General John Bell Hood was promoted to command the Army of Tennessee. And others received promotions to high-ranking positions as well. So, But Claiborne, like kind of we mentioned earlier, remained a division commander and led his division through the rest of the Atlanta campaign and into the Tennessee campaign that followed. On October 2nd, 1864, in the early stages of the Tennessee campaign, Claiborne gave a speech to his men, stating, If this cause that is so dear to my heart is doomed to fail, I pray heaven may let me fall with it, while my face is toward the enemy and my arm battling for that which I know to be right. You can probably imagine what his love letters would be like if this is how he's just speaking to his army. Right, about going on a, on a campaign. <laughs> and we're not going to touch too much on the Tennessee campaign here, simply because we have other podcast episodes that go pretty, pretty detailed into it. In particular, listen to our series on John Bell Hood, the Todd Carter episode we did, 
We've done a few. The yeah. Hood series in particular. Listen to those if you want all the details. But to sum up briefly everything in about two sentences here. Essentially, the Army of Tennessee under the command of General Hood invaded U.S.-occupied Tennessee, attempting to win back Nashville for the South. They were contested by federal forces commanded by General John Schofield. So a couple little moments in the midst of all this. The Battle of Franklin's on November 30th of 1864. So a few days earlier, on November 26th, 1864, in a brief moment of tranquility at St. John's Church in Murray County, Claiborne took a brief walk through the tombstones in the church cemetery and remarked, it would not be so hard to die if one could be buried in such a beautiful spot. Now the two armies had grappled with one another multiple times with Hood's forces attempting to outflank the U.S. Army in Columbia, Tennessee, and cut off their advance in Spring Hill, a small village about 15 miles south of Franklin, Tennessee, on November 29th. Claiborne's men engaged in a sharp but brief fight in Spring Hill, in which they successfully drove a federal brigade back toward the village. Hood, the army commander, ordered that the main road going through Spring Hill, the Columbia Turnpike, be blocked, preventing the remainder of the U.S. forces from advancing. What happened that night was confusing and frustrating and would take too long to describe here, but the Confederate forces failed to block the road and over 20,000 U.S. soldiers marched within about 200 yards of the majority of the Confederate Army, which included Claiborne's division. This breakdown in communication amongst the high-ranking officers that night in Spring Hill and the brilliant maneuvering of the U.S. forces would lead directly to the atrocities suffered the next day in the Battle of Franklin. The U.S. forces marched all through the night of November 29th and in the early morning of November 30th began to arrive in Franklin, finding the Harpeth River, north of town, impassable. The U.S. forces began setting up a series of defensive lines in the field south of town. The Army of Tennessee pursued the U.S. forces and started to amass in the fields south of Franklin in the early afternoon. And there's a, a moment before this battle begins in which Hood is planning the assault and he calls for a meeting amongst his high-ranking officers, which included Claiborne, at the Harrison House. And in this meeting, Hood detailed his plans for a massive frontal assault, hoping to break through the U.S. defenses. Following this meeting, Hood told Claiborne that his division would be in the center of the action, and that Claiborne should instruct his men not to fire until they had broken the U.S. skirmish line. Hood concluded his orders by stating the importance of this assault. He said, Franklin is the key to Nashville, and Nashville is the key to independence. Claiborne's response was, General, I will take the works or fall in the attempt. Following this meeting, Claiborne met with his brigade commanders, General Daniel Govan, who, like Claiborne, considered Arkansas to be his adopted home, told Claiborne, Well, General, few of us will return to Arkansas to tell the story of this battle. Claiborne responded with, Well, Govan, if we are to die, let us die like men. At 4 p.m., 30 minutes before sunset, the Army of Tennessee, roughly 20,000 men strong, advanced toward the U.S. defenses in Franklin. Confederate bands began playing songs like Dixie and Bonnie Blue Flag, and those sounds were shortly followed by the booming sounds of federal cannons and the rebel yell. As per Hood's orders, Claiborne's men successfully overwhelmed the advance line and followed them into the works, breaking through the center of the U.S. defenses. Claiborne's division fought near the Carter Cotton Gin, where some of the most intense action of the battle played out. Claiborne's horse was shot out from under him, and another was killed before he could mount it. With his sword in one hand and his kepi in another, 
Claiborne rallied his men toward the breakthrough, where a mini-ball struck him just below the heart and passed through his body. The next day, Claiborne's body, along with the bodies of Generals Adams, Granberry, and Straw, were taken to Carton and placed on the back porch, where their men could view them and pay their respects. Carrie McGavick was given Claiborne's sword and kepi, and a few other personal items to care for. Now, many of these possessions of Claiborne's have just simply been lost to history. Carrie gave these things to her brother-in-law, who was in charge of running a kind of historical society in Nashville at that time, and since then, many of these items have disappeared. In the days that followed the battle, Claiborne's body was buried in the cemetery at St. John's Church, the same place he had stopped briefly just days before. This is a really sad moment after all this. Claiborne's fiance, Susan Tarleton, heard about his death when she was just out on a walk through the gardens. She heard a newsboy cry out that Claiborne and other generals had been killed in the Battle of Franklin. Now, she did get married in 1867, but died in June of 1868 from an effusion of the brain. Claiborne's body was eventually moved. On April 29, 1870, he was reinterned in his adopted home of Helena, Arkansas. And that's where he still rests today. Thank you so much for listening to part two of our series on Patrick Claiborne. Come back in two weeks uh, where we'll have another podcast episode for you. If you follow us on Instagram, our handle is 10in20podcast. That's T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And if you go to boft.org slash podcast, you can buy one of our t-shirts or sign up for our monthly newsletter. And please write us and write a review. We do read all of those reviews personally. And Brad and I have had many touching moments as we read what you guys say, because they mean a lot to us. So please, please, please give us your feedback. Thank you so much for listening.